Colossians chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2, starting at verse 8 and ending at verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. This is a warning of Paul to the Colossians, and it's a, actually a warning to us as well. Um, because it's kind of an interesting thing. First off, he says, beware. Now, if you're looking at beware, that means to be, be on guard, be watchful. Don't let something take you by surprise. And it's pretty easy sometimes for us in our Christian walk to be taken by surprise if we're not walking with our eyes open. And that's Paul's warning to them. Be careful because there's going to be some things that are going to give you some trouble. And the first thing he says in here is, beware that no man spoil you through philosophy. And spoil here means to be taken captive as a, as a captive of war, to be made a slave. He says there's things out there that are trying to enslave you. And the first thing he uses is philosophy. And philosophy was, in the Greek days, their great love. The Greeks loved wisdom. They loved philosophy. They loved to debate topics. And Paul's saying, be careful of primarily their desire to debate all these topics. And they were good at it. Uh, this was the time of Aristotle and, and uh, those guys that said, you know, we're going to give you, we're going to try to define truth because we're trying to come up with what truth is. <laughs> and they never came up with truth. <laughs> uh, when Pilate asked Jesus, Jesus said, I am the truth. Pilate's answer was, in, from a good Greek point of view, what is truth? And it wasn't a, it, he wasn't even looking for an answer. He's going, well, I already know there's no such thing as truth because that's what the Greeks were saying. Does it sound look kind of a little bit familiar to our day and world that there are no absolute, absolute truths? It's not new. And we keep talking all the time. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything that's going on today has happened in the past. Okay? We're still struggling with what is true. Now, we know what truth is because God said he is truth and it's in the word. And it's kind of funny that we get into God's word and we see truth. And we see things that hold up to examination. But, you know, what kind of philosophies do we have in our day and age are kind of an interesting thing because in his days, one of the greatest philosophies was Gnosticism. Now, that's a word most of you may not recognize unless you remember some of the studies that we've had. But Gnostics believed that anything that was physical was bad. Anything spiritual was good. And by that, they meant anything spiritual. Okay? Much the way our world is today when they start speaking about spiritual things. It doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you believe in something spiritual, it must be good. That is not biblical. The demon world is spiritual. The, there's a lot of false religions that are, quote, unquote, spiritual. Not everything spiritual is good, and not everything of this world <laughs> is bad. Now, we do know that we are sinful beings, that we want and desire to do bad things. But in the Gnostic belief is, because everything in the flesh was bad, everything in the physical world was bad, you could do whatever you wanted in the flesh, because it was bad anyway. 
all right? But you had to have all this special knowledge to get to heaven. And this was a battle of most of the books in the Bible are written in the New Testament against Gnostic beliefs. And we had a upsurge in this world again of Gnostic Christianity that was being battled against in the first century. That you have to have special knowledge to be able to get, get to know God. Doesn't matter what the Bible says, you have to have special teachers to teach you the secret passwords to get into this knowledge. And when, you know, and I say that many of you may not have ever been experienced, but there's still a lot of churches and denominations and religions and everything that have secrets. You learn the secret key to the to the to the knowledge of God. This is one of the things that Paul's saying: Don't get into all of this. <laughs> Don't get into these uh, philosophies. Some of the other philosophies that they were looking at would be things like. Um, scientific information because that was part of their world and in um, so what first did I give that it does second Timothy it tells you to be careful of so-called science and we in our day and age have a lot of so-called science going on one of which is evolution okay evolution has led a lot of people astray and away from God and they'll say things like well if we can't believe the beginning of the Bible how can we not believe anything in the Bible. And you know what? They're absolutely true. If the, first, if the first part of the Bible is not true, then you might as well throw the book away because it's worthless. And, they, and they'll point to, when they say that, evolution. The only problem it is, evolution isn't science. Okay? They cannot take anything about evolution and put it in a, in a lab and experiment on it. Evolution is philosophy. It's a philosophical way of understanding things. And there's lots of things being taught today as science that are more philosophy than science. We have the whole thing of environmentalism. Now, is it bad to go out and pollute the world and make a mess out of it? Absolutely. But evolution, uh, environmentalism is becoming a religion in and of its own self. And you can hear a lot of crazy things. Things like climatology. You know, the fact that we have weather you know, global warming and all of this stuff. There is a lot of science behind predicting the weather. But when they try to predict the weather 100 years from now, <laughs> there's no science involved in that. And you know, one thing when you hear, when you hear them say, a computer-generated projection says this, I was a computer programmer 15 years, that means nothing. <laughs> okay, if they say that it is a computer-generated projection, it means it's worth whatever the pre precepts of the person putting the information in at the start of the program was and what they say might happen with the produce what they wanted to have happen. <laughs> okay? A computer-generated pr projection means zero. <laughs> All right? Uh, and it, it's a big thing of people, you know, hey, a computer generated this. You know, doesn't mean anything. All right? Doesn't mean a thing. Other things that were out there that he was talking about, you know, things like Eastern mysticism that has been out there a lot. You know, Eastern mysticism, which is the basis of a lot of false religions. And this goes into the whole idea of if you just do more good than bad, your scales will balance out <laughs> and God will accept you. Now, how many people really believe that statement? You know, if you've ever gone out to share the gospel with people and ask them, well, how do you think you get to heaven? 
I don't know how many people you've ever shared with the gospel. For, but if you ask them that question, how do you think you get to heaven? You've got to do more good than bad. Or are, are you going to go to heaven? Oh, yeah, I'm a good person. <laughs> okay? By whose standards are you good? You know, I've shared with you, you know, I work out at the prison. Every single prisoner will tell me they are a good person. Well, not every one of them, most of them. <laughs> Why? Because they can pick somebody out that they're better than. <laughs> Even on the yard, they're better than a lot of other people. And they go, well, yeah, well, I'm better than, you know, all these other people. We as humans have this tendency to compare ourselves and say, well, I'm better. Very rarely do we look at the people that are better than us and say, I'm worse than. You know, because there's also people that are worse than us. And there are people that are better than us. The question, though, is what is God's standard? God's standard is you have to be like him, perfect. And if you're not perfect, he says that you're going to be judged with hell. Very important for us to understand, the philosophies out there are many. And they're easy to get wrapped up in. Very easy for us to get wrapped up in these philosophies. Because if we're not on our guard to say, how do we keep from getting into them? We'll get it, we can be in trouble. So be careful of philosophies. If it doesn't sound like it matches the Bible, start looking at it a lot closer, because the Bible's true. The Bible is our standard of truth. He says also, beware of vain deceits. <laughs> empty lies. How many times have you heard empty lies? Now, it's kind of funny that, uh, you know, I used to listen to a lot of songs from the 50s and 60s, all the empty, vain love songs. <laughs> they had no idea what love was all about. <laughs> but you know how many people fill their minds with that? You know, they get into a relationship, and what they're looking for is that, you know, that feeling, I'm going to float on the, I'm going to float on the, on the clouds for the rest of my life, and there's not going to be any problems because I am in love. Well, the reality is that's not a true statement. <laughs> and it doesn't take you long to learn that that's not a true statement. But how many other vain, empty lies are there? How about God is so good he'd never punish anybody? <laughs> Have you ever heard anybody say that? Maybe you've thought about it. <laughs> you know, uh, God is so gracious, it doesn't matter what I do, he's going to forgive me. And what? There's a truth in that, but the, you know, there's also the fact that whatever you do has got consequences. You know, God is very forgiving. But he says, if you do something wrong, there are consequences. He'll forgive you, but there are consequences. You go out and have sex with everybody out there in the, in the world, you're probably going to end up with an STD and you're going to suffer for the rest of your life. God forgives you, but you still will suffer. You go out and you say, I'm going to go party tonight and I'm going to get wasted away. And you go out and drive your car and, and, and crash it into the mountain or, or you know, something and you end up with a broken back and severely broken bones that are going to give you problems the rest of your life. Will you be forgiven of the event? Yes. Will you suffer for the rest of your life? Yes. There's all kinds of lies that are out there that we, we try to buy into. The whole idea that God doesn't want to punish anybody. You know, the idea of hell is a scary thing for people, and a lot of people will write it off. Well, God is so kind, he would never punish somebody for eternity. You know, the thing you want to understand is God is also righteous and just. 
And when we violate his rules and don't accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, he says, you choose to be sinner and, not, and reject Jesus Christ, I will choose to give you what you wanted, separation from me for eternity. And it is eternal. He says it over and over in the scriptures. Hell is eternal. Heaven is eternal. And eternity is a long time. In case you didn't know that. Uh, you know, eternity has no end. He goes on to go th with this and he says, not only out of, but after traditions of men. <laughs> How many times do we follow traditions without even thinking about their traditions? Now, we just came out of the Christmas season, and how many things get done in Christmas time that maybe we don't even know why we do it? It's just what we've always done. You know, it's just what we always have always done. I heard a story one time about this woman who was cooking her ham, and she cut the ends off of her ham. You know, ends of the ham off all the time. She goes, well, they ask her, well, what are you doing? I go, I don't. She goes, I don't know. Mom did it. <laughs> so I went to mom, and I go, well, why do you do it? I don't know. My mom did it. So I went to grandma and said, well, why do you cut the, why do you cut the ends of off your ham? She goes, well, I didn't have a pan big enough to cook them in. <laughs> yeah. But how many times do we do, we follow something and we finally try to figure out why we're doing something. We find out there's no real reason for, no real valid reason for doing it. Paul, when he wrote this letter, was definitely thinking about the Judaizers. Remember, the Judaizers came in wherever Paul went, the Judaizers followed, usually coming in after he left so that he couldn't defend what they were going on. And their message was, Paul really gave you a good message about grace, but you need to be following all the laws and, <coughs> and ways of the Jews. And not only did they want him to follow the ways and the laws of the Jews, they wanted to follow all the man-made ways and rules of the Jews. You know, the Jewish people and religion has a great benefit. They, they take God's word and they say that there's 613 commandments in it and I'll believe them. I've never tried to count them. I'm, that's their job and they, they wanted to keep it. I'll believe there's 613. Over the years, the rabbis had added several dozens <laughs> of rules to every rule. Yeah, pretty amazing when you, I, I went to one of their synagogues one time. I got hold of their little book. It's, it's bigger, it's thicker than the Bible. It tells you what you can and cannot do. Okay. Traditions of men. And their, and their logic goes like this. We're going to make a great big fence around God's rule so you don't accidentally violate God's laws. So they go, you might violate our laws, but you won't violate God's laws. And Jesus, if you read the Gospels, he used to have all kinds of fun violating man's traditions. <laughs> all right. And they would go, why do you do these things? If you remember one time, the, he and the apostles are walking through a field and they grab hold of the, the, the grain and they rub it in their hands to clean it up and they're eating it. And the question that they asked him is, why are your disciples violating the traditions of our fathers? Not the word of God, but the traditions of our father. That's how high they had lifted up tradition. Now let's bring this to a more modern age. You know how many churches have traditions in them that aren't scriptural? You know, go visit a number of churches and you'll find, and we've talked about this, there's a lot of churches that have these unwritten code of conduct to be a good Christian. You know, 
And usually, and I say unridden, because if you go to that church long enough, you'll violate some of the unridden conditions, and they'll be, well, how could you have, how could you have spent the last night playing cards with your friends? I go, well, I didn't know playing cards was wrong. <laughs> or, you went to a movie yesterday? How, how could you ever go to a movie? You know, we want to be very careful with those things, because... What they're basically telling you is, we've got a whole bunch of list of things that you need to do if you want to be a good Christian. Are there things that we should do if we're a Christian? Absolutely, but God's going to tell you what they are. <laughs> there are certain things that God says you shall not do. There's a list of ten of them in the beginning of the Bible called the Ten Commandments. You know, we violate those ones a lot. But there's also other things that he says don't do. You know, don't commit adultery. Don't commit fornication. Don't commit homosexual. Don't commit any of the other sexual perversions that we call normal in this day and age. You know, don't steal. Don't lie. You know, be truthful. Be honest. Assemble yourselves together. All these different things that are in the scripture that God says very clearly do. There's a lot of things that he doesn't have a very clear definition on. Things like gambling and drinking. The only thing God says about drinking is don't be drunk. There's nothing about gambling in the Bible at all. Does that mean it's a good thing to do? Probably not. <laughs> you know, it's not being a wise steward. It's not using your money well. But those are principles and precepts that we apply to the scriptures. And we want to be careful that we don't hold people accountable for precepts. You know, I've heard people say, well, the Bible says you can't drink. Well, where does it say that? It says don't be drunk. And they'll point to things like, you know, temple of God. Don't, you know, don't pollute the temple of God and, you know, uh, be, be wise, don't be foolish, and there's a lot of good principles on there, and if God convinces you that those are principles you're to follow, don't break them. <laughs> if God tells you you can't do something, don't do it. But don't try to make others do it. Paul told the Corinthian church, some of you won't eat meat offered to idols, and some of you have no problem with it. Well, what was the big deal with offering uh, eating meat to idols? Well, for most people, they knew it was just a hunk of, hunk of metal up there that somebody bowed down and put some, some meat in front of. You know, it didn't bother them to eat the meat. Others used to worship that idol and were still struggling with the idea that that idol was something important, even though they were accepting Jesus. You know, but in the back of their mind was, I used to worship this thing. For them, it would be wrong. And Paul says, don't. If it's wrong, don't do it. If you think it's wrong, don't do it. But don't sit there and say, well, because I think it's wrong, you've got to do it. You know, this is something we've got to be very careful. Now, if you can point to a verse that says, don't do something, you know, then don't do it. We know that lying is wrong because God says in the Ten Commandments, don't lie. We know that adultery is wrong because in the Ten Commandments it says, don't commit adultery. <laughs> we know that murder is wrong because God says, don't commit murder. You know, all these things we look at, there's certain things we know are wrong. And that's, but even in those things, they're going to stand and fall before God. I can tell somebody it's wrong, but I'm not going to get sit there and say, I'm going to sit there and criticize them because they're, they're, who's, going to, who's their judge? God is their judge. I'll tell them that they've sinned, but it's God that they stand before. You know, we want to look at this. It says, you know, we need to be looking at this. He says, after, and after the rudiments of the world... You know, think about what the rudiments of the world are. I want to turn to Galatians 5, where Paul gives some of the rudiments of the world. Galatians 5, verse 19. 
Now the works of the flesh are manifested, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variances, emulations, wrath, strath, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, reveling, and such like. The which, to, which I tell you, as I have also told you in times past, they that which do these things do not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we, when we went through Galatians, we went through and we defined all those different terms. But, you know, how many of those things are almost acceptable in our day? <laughs> Most of them, you know. Uh, we, we still don't really believe in, in murder. You know, murder is still a problem. <laughs> but uh, things like adultery and fornication goes on all the time in our world. And they're justified. You know, it's okay. You know, just, you know, have fun. Do what's best for yourself. Make sure you're happy. That's one of our empty lies that we're told in this world. Do what makes you happy. The only problem is when you do what you think will make you happy, you're never satisfied with what you're doing. It just doesn't satisfy. You'll get some pleasure in the short term. Don't, don't get us wrong. We know that sin has pleasure in the short term. But it has huge consequences and it never fills your life long term. And this is what Paul's saying. You know, all these things sound like they're really good, you know. Uh, Doing things that are unclean, being lasciviousness, doing you know, doing you know, doing what's unfair, un, uh, idolatry, variance, emulation, strife. You know, there are people that live for strife. So many of you know who they are. You know, you're having a great time, and this one individual shows up, and they just have to make trouble for what's going on. You know, uh, drama kings or drama queens. You know. Everything's going along good, and if, and if they come in, and they just thrive on making sure everybody's unhappy. <laughs> uh, I don't know if they do it on purpose or not, but they just love to have people at each other's throats. They love the strife. They love to cause problems. Part of the works of the flesh. Um, other things that, have in, that we have is the whole idea of the difference between law and grace. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing. Most people will, in churches will recognize, I am saved because of the grace of Jesus Christ. He died for my sins, and I am saved. From that point on, they live like it's all dependent upon them. <laughs> and you'll hear statements of, like, I'm not sure I'm saved because I don't do enough good things. I don't know if I deserve God's grace. That one's a real easy answer. The answer is, no, you don't deserve God's grace. Because if you deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. It would be wages. <laughs> God's grace is a gift. It's undeserved. I've told people at times in, in the past, you know, you need to give grace to this person. And you know what I hear most often? They don't deserve it. <laughs> well, of course they don't deserve it. You wouldn't be talking to me about them, how you're going to deal with them if they deserved the grace because you wouldn't be giving them grace. They're easy to love. How many of us, and don't raise your hands because I know that we do, how many of us have a really hard person to love in our life? They give us all kinds of grief. It might be a relative. 
It might be a friend. It might be a coworker that's very hard to get along with. As Christians, we need to be showing them grace. Being able to show them grace. Does that mean we make ourselves a doormat for them to keep doing things over and over again? No. But you know, if you're wanting to show grace and love to these people, you're not going to be angry every time you see them. You know, this person that's hard to love, there's this real tendency of you see them coming, lock the doors and windows and don't let them know we're home. (laughs) Oh, here's their car. Let's get back in the car. We were getting out of the car to go home. Let's get back in the car and get out of here real quick. Now, we laugh about that, but that isn't that the way we react to that person that's hard to love? You know, we want to stay away from them. And now, I'm not going to say we're going to make them our best bud. (laughs) You know, they're not going to be the person, let's see, who am I going to hang out with today? I think it's going to be that person that's really hard to, hard to hang out with and love. But, you know, if we're showing them grace and mercy, praying for them, loving them, you know, one thing we've got to understand, and it's so true for us to understand, the lost world is going to sin. That's who they are. That's what they are. You know what? Not to surprise us, but even we as Christians are sinners. And we will sin. Saying that I love to have is, it doesn't surprise me when a sinner sins, and it doesn't surprise me when a Christian sins, because they're a sinner. Now, when a Christian sins, I'm a little sadder, because they should know better. When a lost person sins, they don't know any better. They're living in the only way they know how to live. And that is as a lost person. I can't judge them for doing what's wrong because they know no better. And this is something we've got to keep in mind. How are we dealing with one another? How are we dealing with the world? If your expectation of your lost neighbor is to be a Christian, act like a Christian, you're going to be (laughs) 100,000% disappointed with them (laughs) because they are not going to live like a Christian. Okay, I'll guarantee you they're not going to live like a Christian. They're going to violate God's rules, oftentimes a lot. Be careful about how you're looking at people. We are saved by God's grace. Jesus died for our sins so that we could accept him and be changed, and he makes us a new creation. Then we look at Galatians 5, because he ends this whole thing with, you know, that we're to be like Christ. So let's look at a little bit about what it means to be like Christ. Galatians 5 again, chapter, uh, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another, or envying one another. The fruit of the Spirit. How should we be as Christians? We're going to have love. How is love expressed? Joy. One thing that really bothers me is when I see a Christian who is never joyful. There's a guy at work. He's a good Christian. I know he's a Christian. He loves God, but he has no joy at all when he's at work. I don't know what he's like outside of work. But when he's at work, he is miserable. 
He doesn't like the job, apparently, and he has no joy in anything going on. That's not part of the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> joy. Being at peace. When you go through tough times, I'm not going to say you enjoy your, enjoy your tough times. That's, not, that's going too far. But are you at peace when you go through tough times? God is the God of peace. He wants to keep us in peace. How, do, how can we have peace when we're in the middle of hard times? The number one thing is, number one, we know that all things work together for good. And the second part of that verse, when you get to Romans 8, 29, is that the purpose of all those things is to make us more like Christ. So when you go through hard times, it's to make Christ come out of you. But you know what? God is also in charge. There is not a thing that happens to you that God did not know was going to happen. Period. Even if you caused it, God still knew that it was coming your way. And I shared with you, one word you're never going to hear God say is, I didn't know that was going to happen. And you know what? I'm glad that that's something I'm never going to hear from God. It's kind of amazing to me, and I've said this, he created man knowing that man was going to sin. You know, it was not a surprise to him when Adam and Eve sinned. He created man knowing that, he was, that they were going to sin. And before he created him, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit got together and said, you know, we're going to create man, they're going to sin. Jesus, would you be the lamb that pays their sins? And he said yes. And as soon as he said yes, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, it tells us in, in Revelation. As soon as he said yes, God saw him as slain. He hadn't even created the world yet. And he had already agreed to be the sacrifice for the uncreated beings that they were going to create, that were going to turn away from them so they would buy them back. It's hard to, hard to fathom. I don't even know why God created man knowing all this was going to happen. I'm glad he did. But I don't know, understand. Having that kind of understanding, can you have peace in everything that happens to you if you are absolutely sure that God is in complete control? It gives me great peace. I don't have to worry about what's going on because I know God's in control. It may not seem like he's in control sometimes, but he is in control. Sometimes you just have to understand truth and say, I'm going to accept truth and live in it. Then he says you're to be long-suffering. Oh, long-suffering. That person who bugs you all the time, <laughs> God wants you to be willing to be long-suffering. You know, all of us have a point where we stop. But, you know, how long do we suffer? For some people, one time, one time and you're out. <laughs> you know, for us Americans, a lot of times it's three strikes and you're out. I don't know if that's long-suffering. Long <laughs> how many times are you going to go through something and allow them to... to to uh, show their love. Being gentle. Christians should be gentle. That doesn't mean a pushover, but being gentle. I can't remember who I was talking, but you know, there's things you can say to somebody that are even hard to say, and you can say them either gently <laughs> or you can say them harshly. You, know, you can go up to somebody and go, you know, you're a really big, terrible person. You know, in a very bitter mood, or you can say, you know, you, you're really hard to deal with. <laughs> you know, uh, very interesting. How gentle are we with people? When we give the gospel of Christ to people and we're telling them that the lost go to hell, 
You could go, well, let's go to hell, and I'm looking forward to you going to hell because that's what you deserve. And not, no gentleness in that. <laughs> when you're telling somebody that the lost are going to hell, that should bring tears to our eyes that they're choosing to go to hell. Hell is going to be in hell for a long time. I don't want to see anybody go to hell. No, I don't want to see anybody go to hell. I don't want that to happen. God does not desire it to happen. But if they reject him, he's going to say, I'm going to give you what you want. If you don't want to be with God, he's going to say, fine, I don't, I'll give you what you wanted. They'll find out when they get there that that's not what they wanted. How many times have you ever got what you thought you wanted to, only to find out that it wasn't what you wanted? It made you miserable. You know, a lot of times these people who get into winning these big lottery jackpots and they get a lot of money all of a sudden realize that it has ruined their life because it was more than they realized it was going to be. You know, I've thought about this. What would I do if I won a lottery? Well, I'd probably have my life ruined because everybody would have their hands out saying, I want. I want. And it probably is not worth going through. Sometimes I think I might like to, but <laughs> at the same time, I think about how it would ruin, ruin your life. You know, how easy it would be to get what you wanted and find out it's not what you wanted. Then he says, having faith. Faith. The evidence of things unseen. How many times have you walked in faith and then found out that God was right in what he did? You spoke in faith. You said something in faith. Most of us don't understand faith. We don't understand grace. And if you think you understand grace, you probably don't understand grace. Because <laughs> grace is getting everything you don't deserve. And it's so wonderful. It says temperance, you know, being able to be under control, meek. Now, meek doesn't mean that everybody uses you for a doormat. The definition of meek is strength under control. That is when you're strong enough to rip the person's head off and you don't do it. <laughs> okay? That's meekness. You know, you have the ability to really ruin somebody's life and you don't do it is, is, a, is, a, is meekness. That's part of the gift of God, to not seek the revenge on somebody. That whole idea of being long-suffering. And, you know, we want to be able to start learning, what does God want us to do? How do we get this? last thing I'm going to read is in Hebrews 6. This, this verse has always uh, amazed me. Then the writer of Hebrews says in verse 6, Verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Okay? This is the definition of the writer of, of Hebrews. These are the things that every Christian should know. All right? These are the things that every sin in this room should know about, according to this writer. Let us go unto the perfection, not laying again the foundations of repentance from the dead works, and of faith toward God, the doctrine of baptism, the doctrine of laying on hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Now, I hope every one of you know every, every one of those doctrines that he's talking about. This is what the writer said. These are the basics. These are the basics. And we're not going to go into them today. I've gone into them at other times. But the whole idea is, as Christians, do we spend time getting to know what we believe?
Peter says that we need to be ready always to give a defense for what we believe. Christianity is one of the greatest religions out there because it is defensible. Everything in Christianity has a defense that can be made for it. And I've shared with you, there are several people that have gone in and they're, they're really smart people and they're going, I am going to disprove Christianity once and for all. And you know what? They end up becoming Christians. <laughs> the word of God holds up to examination. God's word holds up to it. And the more they examine it, the more they're going to find out that it's true. Now, the, the newest one is Lee Strobel. He's written all kinds of books. He started out to prove that his wife's Christianity was foolishness and that it wasn't real. Because they were both atheists before, before she became a Christian. And it really bugged him that she became a Christian. That she was so weak-willed that she became a Christian. So he spent the next years trying to disprove Christianity. Now he's a Christian, giving out messages all over the place, telling people how absolutely true the Bible is. That is not an uncommon statement. Josh McDowell did the same thing. He was in college, and a group of his friends became Christians. And he goes, well, I'm going to go prove you guys don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> became a Christian. Great law professor in the 1700s, Blackwell, was challenged by his students to go take your, your lawyer's you know, gifts and go disprove the gospel. He became a Christian. <laughs> All right? The Bible is not a book that is afraid of examination. The other religions' books don't hold up to examination. They don't. The Quran does not hold up to examinations. Contradictions all over, things that make no sense all over. If you get into Krishna, none of that stuff makes sense. You get into the Taoist books, none of those make sense because they're full of contradictions. And they violate rules of, of science. The Bible holds up. Don't be afraid to look at the Bible critically. Know what you believe. Know why you believe it. Because it is important to be able to answer those. Answer the critics. Answer the people who don't know, don't know God's word. I used to love being on the college campus and asking, answering all these people who thought they were so smart and had country, you know, questions about the Bible. It was fun to answer, their, answer them. Because it's not afraid of being examined. You know, and I've shared with you what you'll hear usually when people say that. Well, the Bible's full of contradictions. Anybody who sat on me long enough knows the first question you ask is name one. Well, I don't know. I've just been told it's full of contradictions. Name one. Give me one. There's only about four they're going to pick out. And they all have very easy answers. You know, if they really want to do that, usually it's just a smokescreen. Can't believe the Bible is full of contradictions and errors. Name one. And they won't. And if they do, they're easily answered. And that means that they're actually searching. But be bold in your Christianity. Don't be afraid to, to challenge people and say, what do, I, what do I believe? And be able to share that with people. If you don't know what you believe, you don't have a very strong faith in the first place. Why are you a Christian? Why is Jesus true? Why do you believe the resurrection? Because the resurrection is the linchpin of all of Christianity. And you know what? I've given many messages on this, usually around uh, uh, the Resurrection Sunday. Why do I know that Jesus rose from the dead? It's not even a question in my mind. It is a 
so close to provable fact, it is proven beyond a reasonable doubt in my mind. And it's easy to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he rose from the dead. Once you can prove that one, everything else becomes easy. If he rose from the dead, there's a lot of power in there. And so we want to keep these things in mind. Why do I believe what I believe? Why do I know what I believe? Know these things. Study these things. Don't be given over to all these false teachings that could come your way. And the only way you can do that is by knowing what you believe. And why do I believe? Now, when we get saved, none of us have ever gotten saved thinking we have all the answers. You know, I did not understand God's full, the fullness of God's grace when I got saved. I did not understand the full depravity of man before I got saved. I only knew that I was a sinner. And I knew that I needed somebody else to get me to heaven. And I accepted it. After 46 years, I now know a lot more about it. And you know what? I still know very little about it. God has infinite knowledge. Whatever we think we know what God knows, he's going to show us that we don't even begin to know what he knows. You know and this is what I've said. How big is God? Whatever, however big you think God is, he says he's omnipresent. He is everywhere. Whatever you define everywhere as, you're too small. And I have a big everywhere. I go, God is in, covers the entire universe and the other multi-universes that physics talks about. I'm going to tell you right now, even as big as I have him, he's still too small. <laughs> How much does God know? He knows everything. Whatever you think that means, you're thinking too small. How good is God? However good you think he is, you're, you're way underestimating who, how good he is. Start challenging yourself to see God the way he is, not the way we want to manufacture him. We like to do things in our own way. We make our own God. We make our own rules for God. We need to get rid of those and say, I want to follow you, God. No matter what you say, I want to follow you. We're going to close in prayer, and then we're going to have communion. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you. Lord, if there's anybody sitting in this room that doesn't know you or listening on the Internet that doesn't know you, we ask that they will this day, this moment, admit that they're a sinner and that they deserve punishment and then accept you into their life and that they will contact us to let us know that they've made that decision. Lord, we thank you for that. Help those of us that are sitting in this room that know you get to know you better that we'll be challenged to share with you, with other people, and be ready to defend you to other people. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.